live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Why don't we start with some breaking news? Interesting, because this was not what it seemed like last night. But then again, this time of year is anything what it ever appears. ESPN reporting. The Saints have emerged as the frontrunner to sign former Raiders quarterback Derek Carr. And an agreement, according to ESPN, could be reached as early as today. That's what league sources are telling Adam Schefter. And I would say, wait, what? Was there not a report just last night that he was leaning towards signing with the Jets or leaning towards the Jets as his top choice? And is it me or wasn't it the Jets who were pitching him on this notion of, if you come here, you can win a Super Bowl. And if you win a Super Bowl here, you'll go to the Hall of Fame. And not only will you go to the Hall of Fame, if you win a Super Bowl here, you will go on the first ballot. Right? Was that not part of their pitch? Was that not the report? So if you have an opportunity to go someplace and win a Super Bowl immediately, and wouldn't you want that if the team that you were with cut you? Right? How big of a chip on your shoulder would you have? And how much of a tell me how my ass taste moment would that be? And then you parlay that into the Hall of Fame? And you parlay that into a first ballot jacket? No brainer, right? So why in the world would you pick the Saints over the Jets if the Jets were your ticket to a first ballot Hall of Fame career in a total reinvention, resurrection, and transformation? Or, or, I don't know, maybe it was all smoke. Maybe it was all bullcrap. Maybe they were playing each other. I don't know. (laughs) How about this? Who knew that Derek Carr, of all people, a dude who was cut by the Raiders, of all teams, could create all this drama? And that's not a guy who looks for a lot of drama. Emotion, maybe. He's been known to cry once in a while, but not drama. He's not that guy. So what I'm asking is, the hell is going on here? The hell happened here? For instance, if you want to win, you're picking the Jets over the Saints. Clearly. If you want to win. Or did the Jets decide they didn't want him? Or did the Jets never really want him? But the Jets did reportedly tell him, come here and you can win a Super Bowl. Or was he just a hedge against Aaron Rodgers? Or do they really think they could win a Super Bowl and that that would get that guy in the Hall of Fame? And not just in the Hall of Fame, but on the first ballot. Never mind, for instance, that that was the biggest bunch of bull crap ever. But apparently that's what they told him. This is what greasy salespeople do. Teams that know they're in competition for a player. You know, they tell them things like that. They got to pitch. They got to close. They got to get their guy. But now their guy apparently prefers the Saints to them, even though there was a report last night that he preferred the Jets. So exactly what changed? Do the Jets think they've got a legitimate shot at Aaron Rodgers? And did they just ghost Carr? Pretty curious again, 
because there was a report as recently as last night that Carr was leaning towards the Jets. Or did Carr's team leak that because they wanted the Saints to step up because the Saints were actually his first choice all along? But if the Saints were his first choice all along, why is that? Why would anybody pick the Saints over the Jets? I don't know. Is it because he doesn't want the pressure of being in New York and knowing that if they don't win at all and he does not go directly to the Hall of Fame, that it's all going to come down on him, fair or not, and then New York will tear him to shreds? I don't know. I mean, good dude, good player. But we did see how emotional he can get at times. And for that to be the result of all that effort pisses me off. Pisses a lot of guys off. It's hard knowing what some guys are doing. Like I said, just to practice what they're putting in their body just to sleep at night. Like just so we could be there for each other. And I wish everybody in that room felt the same way about this place. And as a leader, that pisses me off. If I'm being honest. I mean, I'm not here to clown the guy. That's pretty amazing. In a ruthless league. But if Vegas is having that effect on you, can you imagine how gnarly it would get New York City when they've already set him up as, we're a player away. We're a quarterback away. We're going to the Super Bowl with the right guy, and then you're going to the Hall of Fame. What if that doesn't work? Or maybe, maybe he just didn't want that smoke that the Coog Hunter, Zachary, Promise to bring him in practice every single day. Yeah, I'm going to make that dude's life hell in practice every day. <laughs> Maybe he didn't want that smoke. He had said that previously about whoever they bring in to take my job. Yeah, well, I'm who make that knows, dude's life man? Did the Jets use Carr to get Aaron Rodgers? Did Carr use the Jets to get to the Saints? Again, not really sure what Carr wants. Does he not want the heat in New York? We saw the emotion in Vegas. Hell, man, my man might cry every single day in New York. Raider fan, where does that leave you, by the way? Let's not forget about you, Raider fan. As for you, Raider fan, I know how much you hate this guy, and I've never understood that. I like Derek Carr. I never, ever understood your disdain and lack of respect for Carr. However, if he does sign with the Saints, given the utter garbage that that division is, that guy could lead you and go right to the top of a division and into the playoffs in his first season away from you, Raider fan. And how much would that piss you off? You'll hate that guy even more. There are so many layers to this. Remember that whole thing about Aaron being the domino, the first domino? Even if that domino doesn't fall, or maybe this is part of that domino falling, look at all the other layers to this. Not only everything I just laid out, but let's not forget about another really important guy, a really important cog, a really important feature. More importantly, even maybe more importantly than Carr, I I hate myself for saying this, but maybe even more importantly than Aaron Rodgers. What does this do to our dude, Jameis? Where does that leave Jameis? I mean, are we really looking at maybe an NFL without Jameis? 
I mean, I'm not saying it's that bad, but what if it is? Listen, the shield is the biggest thing in the world. The shield is really important to me, my brand, and my business. I know what it's like to come in here for three hours without the shield. But an NFL without Jameis is an NFL that I do not want anything to do with. Yes, I said it. Schefter tweeted, quote, With Derek Carr headed to New Orleans, Jameis Winston now becomes a likely salary cap casualty. New Orleans can move on and save 4.4 mil against the salary cap, but it would take on 11.2 mil in dead money. A post-June 1 cut would save 12.8 million, but no savings until then. I don't know. Now this is getting really dicey and really intense. So whatever happens, whatever happens, wherever he goes, I do know this. Jameis, Jameis will be prepared. A great person once blessed me with great wisdom about always being prepared. It's something that the second I heard it, I called a family meeting. I passed it down to Jake. I passed it down to Logan. I taught it to Janet and said, remember, when I'm not here, when I'm at work, when you're with the kids, make sure you hammer this point home all the time, every chance you get. So they can ingrain it. It can become a part of their DNA, and then they can pass it along to their kids. What was this advice? What did this sage tell me? He told me. He told me. What did he tell me? He told me, be prepared. Well, I just think we were prepared. You know, one thing my, uh, my trainer, he told me, he said, what did he say? He just told us to be prepared. That's right. I tell my kids all the time. Logue, sit down. I want to tell you something that was passed on to me a long, long time ago by a great, great man. You know what he told me, Logue's? What did he tell me? Oh, he told me to be prepared. He just told us to be prepared. And to pick up your room, turn off the bleeping lights, and stop leaving the hot tub on. And be prepared. Hey now, are you craving some protein after a good workout? Do not make a shake. Do not eat a bar. Reach for a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty. It's tender. It's made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. And it goes wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying that way. Look for it in major retail stores near you. And clones, if you don't see it, just ask for it by name because no other jerky compares Old Trapper, what is your beef? Jim Laranega is my guest. Jim, it is so good to have you back. How are you? Hi, Jim. I'm doing good. Good. So let me ask you, plenty of work and opportunity still ahead of you, starting with that ACC tournament this week. But how are you feeling about this group so far? Well, Jim, to be honest, last summer when it all began, uh, we had two transfers and four freshmen come in with the seven guys we had returning, and they clicked immediately. It made my coaching staff and I have an awful lot of fun working with them. The guys are very good friends on the court and off the court. Uh, We've been a very, very good offensive team, and we're an improving defensive team. The other day, we out-rebounded Pittsburgh 
I believe it was like uh, 40 to 22 or something like that. By the way, Jim, I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you about both those things. Go back to your first point, though. When you saw the returning guys come together with the young guys, did you know right then and there, I mean, it's hard to say right then and there, but did you know right then and there you might have something special in the way that that group all came together? Well, I knew we were going to have a very good team, but when you're in the ACC, everybody's got a really good team, and you don't know how the the new players are going to blend with their returners, and you don't know what your competition is going to get from the transfer portal. We got two terrific transfers in Nigel Pack and and Norshad O'Meara, but we we just played Pittsburgh, uh, and the winner going to be the the, uh, co-champions with Virginia, and Pittsburgh has five transfers in their starting lineup, so... You know, the, the uh, landscape of college basketball has changed dramatically, and you don't know who's going to be on uh, your roster uh, once the season's over and the transfer portal opens up. It certainly is a fair point. It's a great point. Jim Laranega joining us. Jim, to your other point about out-rebounding Pittsburgh. Actually, the numbers were, if I'm not mistaken, you out-rebounded them 42-20, to 20, 14 on the offensive glass. If I had said to you before that game that that's how that would go on the boards, what would you have said? Oh, we're going to win. <laughs> yeah, you know, they, they crushed us on the boards the, the, uh, at Pittsburgh earlier in the year. We lost by a couple of points. Uh, in that game, they scored 17 points off the offensive boards to our zero. So I, we made an emphasis. My coaches were on our guys. We must rebound the ball better the second time around. We certainly did that. So what if I had also said to you, Jim, before that game that your leading scorer, Isaiah Wong, would make only one shot against Pittsburgh, then what do you think your chances would have been against Pittsburgh? I would have said impossible. First of all, he's an impossible guy to guard. He's an incredibly high-level scorer. He's an NBA talent, and, and uh, he's, he's very hard to slow down. The fact that he only scored nine points with only one field goal, and yet we won the game is really a testament to the total team effort that we've been getting all season long. It's got- either Isaiah leading us in scoring or Nigel Pack, Norshad O'Meara, and Jordan Miller, who I think is the most underrated player in the country. He's a fantastic all-around player. So we have a lot of guys who have led us in scoring. And on Saturday, it was Wooga Papla, who has never led us in scoring, who had 18 points and played a spectacular game, making six threes. Jim, he was awesome. He was absolutely awesome. Normally, he starts, he comes off the bench, and when you see a guy like this, at least from the outside looking in, my man looks like he can run and jump out of that building. How much of a lift did he provide off the bench with that exceptional energy and on both ends of the floor? Yeah, Wilga Poplar is an NBA talent who is just figuring out the game. He's he's. Not, he's new to the game. He was a baseball player when he was young, switched to basketball in high school. You could see he was a diamond in the rough coming out of high school. Last year, he played sparingly for us. This year, he's improved dramatically, and he has a very, very bright future ahead of him. So, Jim, I wonder, that was, and again, you've got a lot on your plate right now, but that was your 250th win at the U. I understand that those who are closest to you are probably more fixated on some of these milestones, some of these accomplishments, but 250 is a really nice number at a place that I have to think means so much to you. So what does that number represent that you have 250 wins and that you got them there? 
Well, throughout my career, I would tell you every win is because we had very good players. And here at the University of Miami for my 12 years, I can't tell you how proud I am of the, the great job my staff has done in recruiting players that I've really enjoyed being around. The players deserve all the credit. You can go back uh, uh, 10 years ago when we won the first ACC championship. Shane Larkin, Duran Scott, and those guys were terrific. And then we moved on to the Angel Rodriguez era. Those guys were great. When you have really good players, especially really good guards, like Angel Rodriguez and Sheldon McClellan and then Bruce Brown and Lonnie Walker, and now we got Isaiah Wong and Nigel Pack and uh, Wooga Poplar. You know, you're going to be awfully good when your guards are that good. So, Jim, isn't it it's natural to try to compare this team to that team? These teams are very different. Of course, the one thread, you're right, come tournament time, you want good guard play. Everybody knows that. You have to have good guard play. How different, though, is this team than the one that won the conference back in 2012 and 13? Well, the, the 2013 team was huge. We had Reggie Johnson, 6'10", 300 pounds, Kenny Kaji, 6'11", 270, Julian Gamble, uh, 6'10", 260, Rafael Akbajuri, 6'10", 240. We had a gigantic front court that we could just rotate the big guys. We even had uh, Tanya Jakiri, who was a freshman that year, who was 6'11", uh, 215 pounds. So we could rotate the big guys and keep them fresh. This year, we're playing not just small ball, but smaller ball. Our, our starting lineup is 6 feet, 6 3, 6 4, 6 6, 6 7. That's a very unusual sized lineup and a team that can win the ACC. But my George Mason team in 2006 was about the same size, and they proved it, it's not about the height, but it's about the skills and the heart and the brains that you bring to the court every day. I love that. So you're 16 and one, 16 and one this season at home. Obviously, you've got a team that is really capable, as you just pointed out. But I think it also shows that you've got a community that loves and embraces the team and the program. At this point in your life in your career, how gratifying is it to you, and how good does it feel to have that kind of fit, that kind of match, and the way they've embraced you and the team? Well, when I first came here, Jim, they they told me you'll never be able to draw a crowd. There's too much. Um, available to, uh, to, to uh, students. They, they're not going to come to the games. They go to the beach. They, they hang out. And so my staff and I went to work at improving that. In, in uh, 16, 17, and 18, we had sellout crowds. Uh, and then this year, our spirit group called Category 5, you know, we're the Hurricanes. Category 5 is the largest hurricane uh, classification. Uh, and we brought those guys over guys and gals over to meet the players have dinner with the players and we asked them to recruit try to get more students to come to the game and they did a fantastic job of that and we set uh, records for uh, student attendance and once we got it going the town of coral gables and the city of miami embraced this team they have enjoyed watching them grow and compete and it was a sellout crowd on saturday and the fans rushed the court and helped us cut down the nets afterwards. And look what's in front of you right now. So one final thought. You made that great run last year. I'm no bracketologist, Jim, but I'm going to assume that you're going to be a higher seed come Sunday when the brackets come out. Every year is obviously different, but how much will last year's experience in the postseason help this year's team? Well, Jim, I would tell you, you know, with last year's team, it's all about the matchups. 
the kind of defense the opponent plays, the size they have, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are. With our team last year, we played a lot of teams that were very big that had a hard time matching up with our small team. So we beat Southern Cal and Auburn in the first two games because they just had a hard time guarding us. And then we, we beat Iowa State and then ran into a, a very big and talented Kansas team that we just couldn't handle David McCormick inside. He got us in tremendous foul trouble. So, you know, so much will depend not on our seed, but who we match up with. It is such a good answer, and it's so true, right? It is a game of matchups, always. Jim Larinaga, my guest. Miami had a great year thus far, and they're getting ready for the tournament. Jim, great to have you on the show. Really appreciate it. Congrats so far on what you've done already this year, and I'm anxious to see how it plays out. Always good to talk to you, Jim. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Jim. Discover credit cards do something pretty awesome. At the end of your first year, they automatically double all the cash back you've earned. That's right. Everything you have earned doubled. All the cash back from eating at your favorite restaurant doubled. All the cash back from that trip where you sort of learned to snowboard also doubled. And the best part, you don't have to do anything ridiculous to get it. Discover does it automatically. Seriously, though. See terms and check it out for yourself at discover.com slash match. Like, if you want to craft a blueprint on how to take a perfectly good career and run it right off a cliff, check out Jaw right about now. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I'm saying that if he doesn't get right and make some serious changes in his decision-making process or the process overall, that could happen. It could happen. Plenty of time to fix this. Young guy, smart guy, he can get right, but he is headed down a really bad path. And right now he's doing his very best to jack everything up. And if that's the plan... He is nailing that plan. He's executing it, which is why the Grizz had no choice but to yank this dude right off the court. Number one, the NBA is investigating him. The NBA is public about this investigation. And number two, this is not in any way a joke. John needs help. He needs to get help. He needs to get right. He needs to get his career and, more importantly, his life back on track. Or he could throw it all away. And it's all pretty bizarre because, like, maybe 10 minutes ago, he was one of the great stories in the association, one of the easiest dudes to root for. And it looked like he was on a fast track to become not only the face of his franchise, but one of the faces of the entire league. I mean, an international star. But now he's on a different sort of path, a path of becoming the so-called cautionary tale. The path of becoming the poster child of what not to do when you make it. As an example, it's a pretty terrible idea for a 23-year-old, any 23-year-old, but especially an emerging NBA supernova to hop on Instagram Live on a Saturday night and flash a gun. Allegedly. We don't know for certain, but almost certainly, right? I mean, is there anybody who saw that who didn't think that that was a gun? Is there anybody who saw that who didn't think that was jaw? And again, I'm not saying it's just a terrible idea for a celebrity, famous athlete with a lot of money and prestige. It's a horrible idea for anybody. Imagine being in a club and knowing somebody had a gun. I would imagine there's a lot of clubs and a lot of people walking around with guns. And then you combine that with booze 
You combine that with drugs. You combine that with some people who aren't generally very happy. I, I would say that's really dangerous. Terrible idea, incredibly dangerous, incredibly reckless, and then apply it to this particular person, John Morant. 23 years old, face of the franchise, face of the league, well, internationally known now, and a guy with the most amazing life ahead of him. And then you see how far off the path this guy's fallen, how misaligned this guy is. I mean, flat out, out of alignment. That's a really bad decision in the latest of some bad decisions, but a really bad decision. As I mentioned earlier, I'm sure that his apologists, defenders, family, friend, crew, and legal team can do and have done everything they can to dismiss everything that's already been, that's already, he's already been accused of as being wrong, inaccurate, not true. It's just flat out not fair. All right. I mean, we can go case by case if you want to. But is there anybody anywhere who's defending him that would say that was not a gun? Or that was not his Instagram live account? Like, you can't blame that on one of the idiots or sycophants that he may roll with. That was his account. And there he was, holding the gun. Reportedly, but almost certainly. There's no spinning that. There's no calling slander on that. There's no saying cap on that. You can't blame that on somebody else. Unless proven otherwise, that's who that was, and he was the one holding a gun. And if it wasn't, then why is he no longer with the team? Why did he leave? Why? Because pretty much assuredly, that was Jaw holding a gun on his Instagram live feed. Like I would say, don't go on Twitter or Instagram if you're angry or inebriated. I thought it kind of went without saying, don't go on Twitter or Instagram or social media if you're in public and you have the sudden urge to wave your gun in a crowded club or anywhere else for that matter. I didn't think that I had to say that. Maybe I need to add that to the list now. And again, it's not a bad night or one bad night. It's not a one-off. It's not an aberration. This is just the latest in a long list of really bad choices and bad decisions, reportedly. You know the list. He allegedly went upside some teenager's head in a pickup game at his house and then reemerged with a gun in his waistband, reportedly, allegedly. He also has been accused of confronting a mall security guard in a parking lot, which has got to be one of the worst cases of punching down and fake tough guy behavior ever, if that's what happened. A mall security guard. I mean, seriously, what, the mall Santa didn't want any smoke? At least go after the overly aggressive cell phone salesperson at the cell phone kiosk. If you have to pick on somebody at the mall, get that guy. But maybe the most alarming thing happened back in January after a Grizz Pacers game in Memphis. Reportedly that night, Morant's crew pointed a red laser at members of the Pacers from an SUV, an SUV that Jaw was reportedly riding in, and reportedly at least one member of the Pacers thought that that laser pointer was part of a gun. 
as I said, this guy needs help badly. This is not what is known as keeping the main thing the main thing, unless the main thing is doing really dumb, reckless things and jeopardizing an unbelievable future. Yes, we all did dumb, dumb things when we were young. We know this. We all did dumb things when we were dumb. But this is not just dumb. This is reckless. This is dangerous. Hopefully, Jaw understands the magnitude of this situation. Hopefully, he is practicing extreme ownership and accountability and getting the help that he needs as opposed to just going away for a few games, telling us all what we want to hear, and then coming back and nothing changes. Extreme ownership. That's exactly how it sounds. This dude is young. Life comes at you really fast when you have all that money, all that pressure, all that celebrity, and you've been enabled. And you got a bunch of people around you, yes, people telling you exactly what you want to hear and blowing your head full of stuff. But still, he's got to get control of it. And don't just blame it on the people he rolls with. That could very well be part of the problem, but it's up to him to fix that too. His life, his responsibility, his choices. If he's got the wrong people around him, it's because he let them in. And now he's got to cut them off. So, bottom line, the team initially said he would miss two games. Now his coach, Taylor Jenkins, says there is no official timetable for his return. You know, I think the focus right now is Josh taking on the responsibility to really get the help he needs to get into a better place, uh, generally speaking, but also on the flip side, uh, to be in a better place to, you know, embrace the responsibilities and expectations as a member of this team. Um, That's what we're dialoguing about. Um, You know, that's what we're going to support him through, but we're also going to hold him accountable to. I mean, there's not a definitive timeline. I mean, we have said that it's going to be at least these two games. You know, we're taking it one day at a time. I mean, this is going to be an ongoing healing process. Um, So um, I I can't comment in terms of what the exact timetable is going to be because it's really not a timetable situation. Hopefully, both sides mean that. Hopefully, John means, hey, I need this time. I need to get right. I need to get right. And hopefully, when Jenkins says, we're going to hold him accountable, they mean that too. I wonder. That's a small market team with a supernova that they've committed a lot of money to. So are they going to enable him, or are they going to really hold him accountable? In terms of there is no timetable, that's how I'd approach it. You have to take a much longer view of this. This guy's 23 years old. We're talking about a future Hall of Famer. We're talking about a future billionaire. I mean, this guy's got the entire world in the palm of his hands if he gets right. Take as much time as you need. Of course they need this guy, but not nearly as much as this guy needs to get realigned and back on path. Again, an incredible career and life in front of him, but this dude needs to walk in his purpose because I don't think threatening mall cops, beating on teenagers, and waving a gun in a club on Instagram Live is his purpose. Because if, in fact, it is, it's going to end really badly. And then you will have the biggest waste of opportunity and talent ever. It says here he's not that guy. Not ultimately. He's just making some really bad choices. Go away, dude. Go away. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, go away. Look within. Figure out who you have become, who you want to be. Come back with a better plan execute that plan, and then do what you do best. 
be the face of the franchise, a supernova, and a generational talent. Because if you keep this up, you're going to be a generational bust, and who knows how many others you're going to take down with you. Hit your reset button, man. Because this is way bigger than basketball. And until you get your own issues fixed, basketball has got to be secondary. Secondary. That is my long-form take on John Morant. 1-800-636-8686. Dear Jim, social media is a loaded gun. Signed Jim Rome in 2008. I'm not denying it, Brett. You're right. It might have been 08 or it might have been 09. But I did say that. What I actually said, Brett, back in the day, is Twitter is a loaded gun without a safety and it will go off. So do not tweet if you're angry. Do not tweet if you're drunk because Twitter is a loaded gun and it will go off. And it always did. Guys, keep yourself tight and feeling confident with new and improved Dove Men Plus Care Antiperspirant, reformulated with 72-hour sweat and odor protection and one-quarter moisturizing cream. Stop worrying about your underarms so you can be present for the moments that matter. Do not let underarm insecurities keep you at arm's distance from the ones you care about. Buy new and improved Dove Men Plus Care Antiperspirant with 72-hour sweat and odor protection wherever personal care products are sold. Let's go to Tampa. Ernie, good to have you. Ernie, how are you? How you doing, huge one? Good, dude. You know, two words they should have told that John Morant. You're a corporate entity. You know, you just don't affect you. It's, it's so many boardrooms right now going through hassles about this cat. And if I was the, the chairman of uh, ABC, who got that big, who got to pay for that big old NBA package, I'd, I'd pull the NBA commissioner. The union guy, John Morant, all of them out of Southern California, where you at? And another thing, I lowball them. Come on, man. I didn't come back to work for Disney to go through this house. I got enough for ESPN alone. Are you craving some protein after a good workout? Do not make a shake or eat a bar. Instead, grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Why Old Trapper? Because Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and tender and made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. Old Trapper is a family-owned business that takes smoked beef very seriously, and you can taste it in every single bite. Who wants dried, tough beef in a bag? Nobody. It's like eating a shoe. Old Trapper is the real deal, and it comes in four amazing flavors. Old Fashioned is sweetened with a touch of brown sugar goodness, teriyaki, peppered, and hot and spicy for those of you who like to take things up a notch. Next time you want a great protein and energy snack that you can have anytime, anywhere, grab some Old Trapper beef jerky. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? So let's talk about UFC 285. If I've said it once, I've said it 100 times on this program, and I'm going to say it again right now. One of the things that I think makes MMA so different, one of the things that I love about the sport is that everybody loses. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how dominant you are. Everybody gets beat. That's one thing that sets that sport apart from any other sport. Everybody 
the best of the best. You stay in it long enough, you exchange enough hands, you will lose. Case in point, Saturday, UFC 285, Vegas, Valentina Shevchenko, who many consider the best pound-for-pound female fighter of all time, was ahead on all cards in her fister against Alexa Grasso. Heavily favored. Heavily favored. But she was submitted after missing one spinning back kick, and Grasso took her back. She saw it. She knew it was coming. She slipped it, grabbed her back, and that was that. It snapped her nine-fight win streak, seven consecutive title defenses of that flyaway strap, and really Grasso became the first person who's ever beaten her that was not naturally bigger than her. But again, in fact, Jim Laranega made the point in college basketball, and it's even more so for MMA. Styles do make fights. Styles make fights. And back to my point, somebody will either have the perfect style to beat you, somebody will have a discipline that you haven't seen before, or or you're going to make the wrong mistake at the wrong time, and somebody's going to make you pay and end you. And that happened to her. And she is arguably the best to ever do it. It happens to them all. Except for one dude. John Jones. Say what you want about this guy. It does not happen to this guy. Even when he moves up in weight to fight the big fellas, John Jones does what John Jones does inside the cage. He wins. Always. Remember when Dana White came on last week and I said, the guy hasn't fought in three years. How big of a concern is ring rust? Some people think it's a real deal. Some think it's not. And Dana said, I'm going to paraphrase, but Dana said, well, I think it is. I think it is. He goes, I absolutely believe in ring rust. To which John Jones would say, ring rust my ass. He returns to the sport after a three-year absence in carrying so much more weight. And the cat didn't even need three minutes. Didn't even need three minutes to get rid of Cyril gone. Hell, he barely needed two minutes before he got gone to tap the hell out. Jones did exactly what I thought that he should do. Gone is dangerous standing up. Don't mess with that. Don't prove your point. Don't let your ego get the better of you. Get that fight to the ground. Work your magic down there and end this guy. And that's exactly what he did. He slipped a punch, got his back, put him in a guillotine along the fence, and gone and had enough, and he tapped the hell out. Jones is just making him carry him. Putting pro- I mean, it's true, right? How, how do you deny that guy that? If he went into the cage, already considered the GOAT by many, takes three years off, moves up to heavyweight, fights for the first time, fights for the strap, wins in that manner. How are you going to argue this guy's not the best of all time? No matter what you think about him personally, no matter what you think about his act outside the cage, inside the cage, this guy is the best of all time. I mean, that's incredible. 
not only did he fight heavyweight for the first time, he made it look easy. He moves up and makes easy work of one of the baddest stand-up heavyweight combatants of all time. Now, I'm not saying that Gon is some kind of wizard on the ground, but standing up, he's dangerous as hell. And I know it's easy to come and gone, but don't get it twisted. This guy's a bad, bad dude. A guy who got the best of Francis and Ganu on their feet a year ago before Francis had to change plans and then grapple with the guy. And Jones, who is a much better grappler than Francis, knew this and knew that getting a hold of this guy with his superior wrestling skills was the easier, easier, smarter way to go. And he did just that. And it didn't look hard, and it didn't take long. Like I said, John has done some really stupid things outside the octagon. Really dumb. Except his fight IQ is on par with his skill, and his skill set's incredible. The only damage that he endured was an illegal kick to the stick by Gon, seven seconds in. I mean, I'm talking flush on the stick. Kicking the stick. Flush on the stick. Flush on the penis. And Cracker Jacks, yo. See what I did there? That's not what I did there. Anyway, I digress. It's been this argument about who the GOAT really is, right? The longer that guy was away from it, the tougher it seemed to be or to make the argument that he was the guy especially those past few years, because he's not showing up. He's not proving his point. And he's done some pretty dumb things again outside the cage. But inside of it, there is no argument. You can end that discussion right now, period. GSP, Anderson Silva, both legends, but not John Jones. Habib, absolutely incredible. One of the greatest fighters ever. And he could flap mall cats. But he got out at a pretty early age. And he only made a total of three title defenses at one weight class, not Jones. I mean, nobody can match up to this guy's record. He's 27-1, and one, and even that loss wasn't really a loss. The ref DQ'd him in a fight that he was dominating for an illegal elbow instead of only taking off a point. So check the resume really quickly. Youngest UFC champ of all time, has won more title fights than anybody in UFC history, 15, and no one has ever fought and beaten the caliber of competition that Jones has. I mean, this guy has fought and beaten a murderer's row of icons. And now you can add Gone to that list as well. And on top of that, another strap in another division. And not only that, but the heavyweight division. <laughs> you, want, you want more proof of how amazing this guy is? Let's see how incredible Jones is. Drake bet him, and he still won. That should tell you all you need to know about him. Even Drake wins money. Drake, you betting this guy. Sports betting. Go back to your little albums of rapping. That was Colby. One more time, Colby on Drake. Drake, you suck at sports betting. Go back to your little albums of rapping. So Drake bet on John Jones. John Jones won in two minutes. Goat. I mean, Colby, that was a great line. And you're right about one thing. Drake pretty much does suck at sports betting, but he doesn't sell, quote, bleepy little albums. You're wrong about that part. So what's next for John Jones? You know, the other argument was he couldn't stay out of trouble and he's got bored. 
He just got bored. There was nobody for him to fight. There was nothing to fight for. He got bored, and then he came back and said, all right, I'll just win the heavyweight title, and he did. So now what? What is next for John Jones? Well, he addressed that in the octagon afterwards as well. And possibly fighting former champion Stipe Miocic. What do you think about that? Oh, yeah, baby. Y'all want to see me beat him, Stipe? One thing I know about the UFC is we give the fans what they want to see. Stipe Miocic, I hope you're training, my guy. You're the greatest heavyweight of all time, and that's what I want. I want you real bad. All right, so Jones sounding pretty lucid, you know, sounding pretty focused, sounding kind of evolved and mature and like, yeah, I'm back to business. That's what I want. He is right about, hey, look, I know a lot of you don't like it, and I know a lot of you don't like Dana White. I get all this. I'm not going to talk off any of this, but he's right about one thing. The best thing about UFC is the best fight the best. So I could see that fight. Stipe and Jones. Jones opened as a minus 250 favorite. Last I checked, this is incredible. He opened as a minus 250 favorite. Last I checked, he'd already moved to minus 360 against Stipe. Remember, he was around minus 160 against Gone. That's why I said before that fight, if you can get John Jones at minus 160, you got to hit that. But the reason you could was he had never fought heavyweight. He was going in against somebody very tough, and he had gone three years without fighting. Well, now he's back, and he looked like he didn't skip a beat. Which brings us back to Francis. Francis. Dana White's made it pretty clear that Francis will not be back in the UFC ever again. And John, well, Jones, he had a pretty interesting comeback for the former champ after the champ tweeted about Jones's win. Francis tweeted about Jones, and when asked for a response to that, this is what Jones had to say after the fight. Uh, do you have a response to Francis Ngannou referring to himself? Francis is a big old Prior to that, you have to understand the, like the context and the setup. Jones was talking about, I need to remain humble. I can't get too full of myself. I have to understand the opportunity that I have before me. I have to understand the magnitude of what I accomplished and how good this feels and how good I feel about myself. Like he was saying all the right things. And then somebody said, what about Francis? Alvin, run that back one more time. We beep it for a reason. He immediately dropped that whole thing about, I need to be humble and uh, understand ever, what's in front of me. Yeah, but what about Francis, John? Uh, do you have a response to Francis Ngannou referring to himself? Francis is a big old <laughs> Listen, I don't know that this dude can be trusted, Jones, I mean, to stay in his shoes and to stay out of trouble. But in the meantime, there's absolutely no doubting this guy's greatness in the cage. No argument for anybody other than him being the GOAT. He's absolutely that. Hopefully he's gotten all that other bull crap out of his system and has his dome straight and will do what he's supposed to do, namely wreck folks inside of the cage and not outside of it. I love that quote. I love it. All that muscle with a big-ass Excuse me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. I was going to set that up, Alvin. So 
he made that first crack when he said Francis is a big bleep. And then without even prompting, he doubled back and he gave himself credit for saying it. He's like, man, I love what I just said about that guy. I love that quote. I love that quote. I love it. All that muscle with a big ass Excuse me. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You sound sorry, dude. All that muscle and a big ass bleep. Incredible. Excuse me. I'm so sorry. No, you're not, dude. You're... We are joined right now by Aditamiwa at a bar. Tamiwa, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. It's really good to have you. So obviously there was a whole lot riding on the combine. Before we talk about exactly how you did, what was your mindset coming in? How did you approach it and how did you work your way up to it? Yeah, so I definitely had a lot to prove. Um, I, I just, you know, didn't think people understood how, you know, just how athletic I really was. So being able to show that, you know, just makes me happy. I was able to come out and execute. So, you know, you only get a few opportunities to, you know, execute in those type of moments. So I was able to do that, and I'm happy with that. All right, so in terms of the time that you had, a 4.49, that was the fastest time ever recorded by a player listed at over 280 pounds. I want to repeat that. You ran a 4.49 at over 280. Did you have a target time in mind as you were getting ready to run at Lucas Oil Stadium? Yeah, definitely. So that was probably, you know, the first time I was able to actually run a 40, like, all the way through. So I kind of had to use my projections from, like, my 20-yard splits and stuff like that. Um, so I would say, you know, my goal was to at least get a 4-5 at the worst. So I was able to, I saw the unofficial. So, I, you know, I was obviously happy with that. And then it got even better when the official came out. All right, so, so that's, really, that's really interesting. Why yeah. – for, the, for those who do not know, why had you not run a full 40 and would train in 20, 20 splits? How does that work? Yeah, so, I mean, the 40 can be a very dangerous event. Um, you know, guys can get hurt from the 40. So I just kind of went through, you know, throughout training, just going 20 every time, making sure I was, you know, making sure my, you know, muscles were good for it. Uh, you know, I took, my, I took care of myself, you know, leading up to that, to that full run and, you know, was obviously able to execute. That's really interesting. So how important is that first step, and how did it feel coming out? Yeah, the first step is very important. You know, in training, you know, like the, the, very, like the most important thing we're working on is, is basically like our start. So making sure you have a good first step and you're pushing those first couple yards to make sure you're gaining ground and have power because you want to build up your speed. Because the start is how you build up your speed so then when you're in that back 20 yards, you're able to keep building off that speed and keep going off of that. I mean, so when you realize that that time is official and then you realize it starts to sink in that you've done something. I mean, think about this. You did something that had never been done in the history of the Combine, and we're talking about the world's biggest job interview and how many, who knows, thousands of people who've gotten ready for that moment. When it hits you that you've done something that had never been done before, how did that feel? I don't think it still hit me, to be honest with you. Like, it's honestly crazy, like, looking at that time, 449. Because, like I said, my goal was 45. I knew I was, de- like, a definite 45 type of guy. Um, so, for it to be a 449 is just truly incredible, even, even as I'm talking to you. All right. So, you had a huge showing also at the Senior Bowl. You were named the national team's practice defensive lineman of the week. I'm kind of curious. What was that week like for you? What was your biggest takeaway from working with NFL coaches in Mobile? 
Yeah, definitely. So, you know, it's definitely a tough week. Um, you know, everyone's obviously competing for a job. Um, and, you know, for me, I came into that week just like, you know, same thing like the combine, just proving my athleticism, you know, proving my intelligence and in all those me- uh, meetings and interviews and just so- like just showcasing just my overall ability to be a student of the game. Um, and, you know, my like kind of relentless motor running to the ball, things like that. I just wanted to prove to teams is like the type of player that you're going to get. You know, it seems like listening to what you're saying, like that was your approach going into the combine. That was your approach going into the senior bowl. Fact of the matter is, tell me I'm wrong, but I think you told reporters last week that when you enrolled at Northwestern, you didn't initially envision yourself as somebody who would perform well enough to even get invited to the combine. So at what point in your college career did you start to believe that you had a real chance of turning that NFL dream into a reality? Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say my sophomore year, just watching my teammates, Rashawn Slater and Greg Newsom and Ernest Brown all get drafted, um, and then seeing some other other guys kind of get picked up, you know, signed with teams. So, like, just seeing that draft and kind of the other players getting drafted as well, guys I competed, you know, competed against in the Big Ten, it just kind of made me realize, okay, you know, I could definitely do this. But some of those guys that were getting drafted, I was competing against them, I was doing well against them at times. So it just kind of showed my potential, I thought, to me. So that's when it you know, really became a reality. Okay, you know, this can be something I can really do. So it's one thing to have life in the Big Ten. I love the conference. We've got a son that's going to graduate from Wisconsin you know, for a little bit of context. So I understand the conference. I love the conference. But Northwestern is a different deal. I mean, that is Big Ten through and through. But that is an amazing academic institution. What was it like to be a student athlete there? Yeah, definitely. You know, with Northwestern, you definitely have – Obviously the football side, but, you know, really the academic side as well. So it's like, you know, handling two jobs, which definitely helped grow me as a man in person, just being able to, like, you know, you know, have two things that you're, you know, where there's high expectations and getting the job done in both. So just kind of, you know, going through those things my entire four years has helped me, you know, I guess be prepared for this process I'm going through right now because it's not as hard for me because it's been stuff I've kind of been dealing with the last four years in terms of managing a whole bunch of different things. Well, I bet. No doubt about that. So let me ask you this. It's, you, you want to be where your feet are, but if you look ahead, the draft is going to be held in Kansas City, where you grew up, where your family still lives. You start at North mm-hmm. Kansas City High School. Does it seem a little surreal that as you get ready to transition to the pros that your name is going to be called in your hometown? Yeah, it's crazy. You know, I actually set out the goal, like, a year or two ago, so that's when I found out the draft was in Kansas City. And I was like, wow, that'd be really nice to, you know, be invited and, you know, be selected in the first round, being able to shake the commissioner's hand in front of my, you know, home city. So, yeah, it's just it's, – it's still crazy. But, you know, like you said, I, I am focused on right now. And, you know, right now I have to be ready for the pro day. You know, before you go, it's like you talked about – your football IQ, your intelligence, you want to make sure they know how smart you are. I mean, I don't think that's going to be a hard sell. We understand this, dude. You're very bright. But at the same time, like anybody else, it is a job interview. You don't want to sound like you're not humble and you don't have gratitude. You don't want to be immodest, but you got to sell yourself, right? So if an NFL team selects you, what are they going to get if they take you in the draft? Go ahead and sell yourself and not feel badly about it. Yeah, so they're going to get a very, you know, extremely athletic player, you know, very intelligent, very smart, very respectable, you know, respectable uh, person who's going to, you know, care about others. And then also just having a, you know, relentless motor, a guy that's going to care, that's going to show up, you know. I think about, like, kind of my process, like, at the Senior Bowl and Combine, these are opportunities where if you don't show up, you don't get that opportunity again. And I've shown up in both those two things. 
So that's why I believe I should be, you know, you know, a part of your team, a part of your program, to help you guys, you know, win games. Tommy, well, what about a pro day? Do you have a pro day coming up? And then, how, I mean, I would imagine you'd approach that the same way. How important would that be? That would be very important. You know, I didn't do the shuttle or elk at the combine, and my bench number is, is definitely not, you know, where I could be. So I'm going to do the shuttle, the elk home, the bench, and the position work at the pro day. So those are all four things going to be very important at the pro day to can just continue to show and prove just what I can do. Dude, one last thought. What about your motor? You talked about I just want them to know that I do have a motor. How much of a motor Absolutely. is just kind of it's God-given, and how much of that is just will, grit, and determination? Where does that motor come from? Yeah, I think it's more just will, determination. And I think teams can see that throughout my four years I film the senior bowl and the combine, just my willingness to go extremely hard and just give a hundred percent of whatever I have. At a Tommy Wah at a bar, a had himself a great combine, not done yet. Getting ready for the pro day next week. And also the draft Tommy Wah. Great to have you on the show. Really nice to meet you. Congrats on that so far. And I look forward to talking to you again once you get in the NFL. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Good night. No.